Well, good morning. You are stuck with me today. My name is Greg Bolowitz. I am the executive pastor here at Redemption Church, and I get the privilege of bringing the message to you today. Thank you, first and foremost, to the worship team um, and leading us in worship. What a good reminder through the songs of our salvation that we have. I mean, this is all we have is Christ. This is why we come together, because of what Christ did for us and the salvation that we've received because of his work. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. So a good reminder. It was great to worship with you this morning through those songs. Um, Let's kick it off in the message. Value says, when we say our mission is to declare and demonstrate God plan, God's plan of redemption, the gospel, we mean that our aim is always the salvation of those who are apart from Christ. We declare this plan of God's by clearly articulating the gospel through all means available. And we demonstrate this plan by compassionately pursuing people with the love God has placed in our hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, We thank you again for the gift of life that you've given us today. We thank you that we got to come here and worship and remember the salvation that we have. And Lord, as we dive into the importance of being gospel-driven, I pray that you would open our eyes and help our hearts hear a message that would affect us. Not only affect us while we're listening, but that it would affect our lives and that our lives would demonstrate being gospel-driven because of the salvation that we've received. So, Lord, I pray that your hand would be over this service today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible, as we've learned through the past couple weeks, is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and the sufficient word of God. But what's it about? You know, the Bible is obviously God's revelation of who he is and what he's created, but it's also this epic narrative that involves us, you and me, and it's involved humanity in the past. From Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, you open your book, that's where you're gonna start, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we're given a narrative story a true story of how God is moving throughout human history. So the challenge was made last week by Fred. How will you make your life more Bible-centered in 2023? And I I hope you've taken that challenge seriously. We've had, I think to this point, over 100 people have signed up through the registration link to say that they're a part of that, which is awesome. Completely awesome. Um, but as you read through the Bible, you, you, must, you must remember that there's four main narrative headings. And if you can recognize these headings, it'll, it'll help you in the overall narrative sequence of the Bible. Now, if you're behind in your, in your plan at all, I did this last night because Fred posted a video for... If you haven't taken the challenge and you're like, well, we're too far gone from January 1st now, I started at Genesis 1 in the YouVersion app, and I put it on two-speed, 
because it really, it, it's not that fast. The guy talks really slow, so I think it just brings it up to normal talk, but I might talk a little bit quick. Um, I finished that in like an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes last night. So it's not too, you're not too far behind yet. So if you are maybe new here today and you're like, what is this plan? You can sign up for that and you can, you can dive in and you're not too far behind. And even if you've fallen behind, just put on the audio app, read it along with it, and, and you'll be up to speed in no time. But as you go through the Bible, there's a narrative. And uh, this next image that will be put up is called the gospel narrative image. There's four headings. You got creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the Bible. That's the the thousand foot view of the Bible. Now there's a lot, there's a lot more in between those headings. But if you zoom all the way out, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. And the, the interesting thing is, is we have already crossed off the fall or the creation and fall already in our Bible plan. And we're through the first book. We're in the first, we have 65 other books to go, and we've already been through two of those narrating headings. So it went like this. God created everything. It was good, yet mankind disobeyed in the garden, and therefore sin entered the world. These two headings, these two headings set up the rest of the Bible. From now until the New Testament, we have to keep in mind where we're at. Creation has happened, and man disobeyed, and now man is sinful and separated from God as a result. And they have, and as we go through, you're gonna see, they're gonna have a hard time obeying God, being obedient to his word. They're gonna try to fill their hearts, the God-sized hole in their hearts because of that separation. They're gonna fill it with a whole bunch of other things. So knowing where you're at will help as you read. Now, the, the bad news is, is we won't get into the New Testament until October, which means it's cold now, and it's going to be cold when we get into the New Testament as well. It might even be snowing, but that means there's a lot under these narratives. So um, God came in the redemption part. This is what we just celebrated, right? The Christmas story. Under the redemption heading, when, when the New Testament comes, it's the Christmas story. Jesus came as man, and he had to deal with the fall. He had to deal with sin. And he, he, he was moving the narrative in, in accordance to God's will. So that's where we're at. That's where we live today, more importantly, of where we're going to be in this sermon. The time after Jesus and before the final restoration. And this next picture, this next image well, kind of, that's my stick, stick figure humor. Um, <laughs> there's great insight to that, though. There's great insight to knowing where you're at in the narrative of the Bible, the placement of our history. We're, we, we, we should have, as Fred said last week, we should have this, this sense of responsibility or this burden because we, where we're at in history. We are after Jesus, but before full restoration. We have so many resources. We have Bibles that read to us. We have great teachers throughout the year. We have people that have just 
just dived into scripture, devoted their life to it, and just have just funneled that information so concisely to where we're at, to help us. And it should, we should have a responsibility to know and to understand because in our generation, we have a clearer perspective than any other generation because we can look back. You know, they always say hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, we have thousands of years of recorded hindsight, which is 2020. That's a true blessing. I mean, this world, if we could open up the Bible as the world and, and look and say, well, that, that, didn't, that didn't play out too good for them, and that's kind of where we're at right now, and that's not what God wants for our life, this world would probably operate a little bit better if we would just listen to the what not to do's that have been recorded for us in hindsight. Thousands of years, true blessing. And, and, and it's a blessing that we are in this point in time right now. But here's the reality. The human narrative will end. Jesus will come to restore everything. And only those who have new life will remain. So that means every second, do we know when that's gonna happen? No. You know, that stick figure could be real close to to redemption because there's thousands of more years that are gonna go by. Or we could be right next to restoration. We don't know. But one thing we do know is one second ago is now we're one second closer to Jesus. He's coming back. He's coming back and your future depends on an event that happened in hindsight, which is 2020, which is clear. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we live. That's where we land today. So to be gospel-driven, to be gospel-driven as the church and as the believers, everything that we do as a church and, and as individuals We must view it through the lens of the gospel. Everything, absolutely everything. Our lives should reflect the gospel message that we receive. The salvation that we receive should change our lives in a way that it changes what we do and how we view the world. We want to declare and we want to demonstrate the plan of redemption to those who are lost and do not understand the narrative of the Bible and its impending doom on those who are not redeemed. And we can only do this in one way. We can only do this in one way if we're not ashamed of the thing that saves us. That's our first point today if you're following along in the handout. To be gospel-driven, you cannot be ashamed of the gospel just can't. If you want the gospel to motivate you, you can't be ashamed of it. Rather, you must respect it and understand what it does. Paul, Romans 1.16, very popular memory verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. 
Now, the, the last part of that, don't get tripped up. First to the Jew, also to the Greek, just means everybody. Everybody. It's the power of salvation to anyone, all cultures, all nations. But if anybody was gospel-driven, it was Paul. He was not ashamed. He was not ashamed, and why? He answers it right in his verse. Because it is the power of God for salvation. We have to recognize that the gospel itself is powerful. Nothing else that you can say or I can say up here, say or do, is more powerful than the message of the gospel. That's where the power is. And that's where the motivation comes from for Paul to go and to witness to the Gentiles. The unfortunate, it's unfortunate because today we have this, this pandemic of, of gospel light churches, unfortunately. And, and not only churches, but even in ourselves as well. But what, what pastors will do is they won't speak the full gospel because they're afraid you might just not show up next week and occupy a seat. It might just be a little too harsh. You just might not be ready for that. And this, the message may be just a little too strong. You know, they preach, and this is what they do. They preach, God loves you, loves you so much. Oh, does God love you? And he does. He does. But we minimize God's love when we don't understand the wretchedness of ourselves and our sinfulness as humanity is. Like God's love is, is magnified when you recognize the status quo of your life. You are a sinner separated from him. So yes, does God love you? Absolutely. And he shows his love by sending his son. But if, if nobody preaches that you're a sinner and you have to repent, then his love is minimized. Paul realizes that there's power in the message. And what it comes down to is if you or if pastors or churches have to sugarcoat the gospel message, then they don't find power in it. They don't. Paul realizes the worth. Paul realizes the power because he felt it. He, he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus. And his life was changed. It changed how he viewed his life. He changed how he lived his life. Changed how his life was operated in the future and his mission of his life. That's the power. Paul felt it. Let's look at, let's look at one example of Paul in Acts chapter 14. Now let me, let me set this up a little bit because we're kind of hopping into the middle of Acts here. So Paul and Barnabas fled Antioch and Iconium because they were preaching the message and the Jewish people there, um, they were getting irritated by them because people wanted to hear what they had to say and they weren't going to listen to them anymore. So they fled. They caught wind of this persecution and they fled to Lystra. And, and as soon as they got into this town, 
Paul did this miraculous healing in front of everybody. And they thought he was a god, which we'll get into in a second. But in turn, it opened up this door like, wow, look at this guy. And Paul used it for his advantage to preach the gospel to these people. But persecution caught up with them. The people from Antioch and Iconium, they found, where, found out where he was at, and they came and traveled to here. So that's where we're jumping in. Acts 14, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 19 through 22. Some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. And after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul was facing persecution. Paul was stoned so badly that they thought he was dead, which means these men that that stoned him took his limp body and dragged him outside of the city to leave his body there. That's wild. That's for preaching the gospel. They thought he was done for, but he wasn't. The gospel motivated him to continue. And he knew there was power in that message, so so it was worth dying for. It was worth dying for. Paul knew that if he could only get in front of these Gentile people, preach the message of the gospel, that these Gentiles could could have salvation and, and have this encounter with Jesus and recognize their sinfulness and be reunited with the God that saves if they could only hear it. And Paul found that of worth. He found power in that. Instead of them going to hell, they could have salvation. And the rest of their lives, as a result, could glorify God. That's powerful. Now, in some miraculous way, Paul didn't die, right? Like, he he looked dead. They thought he was dead. But he gets back up. He gets back up, and not only does he get back up, he goes back into the town. So, I don't know if I'm doing that. I don't know if if people that just stoned me, I'm like, well, I'm going to go back in here for some more. And if that's not amazing enough, what's he do the next day? He says the next day, gets up and leaves for Derby, a 60-mile journey. Now, that's not a 60-mile journey like we know. That's a hard 60-mile journey. So he was just stoned yesterday. And he's getting up and going on a 60-mile journey. I can't get out of bed in the morning after running around my, with my kids in my house, let alone getting stoned. Paul's the man. He has, some, he has some sick motivation in his life that we all should desire to have. Man, he, he gets into Derby. What does he do again? He preaches. He makes disciples 
And then if this all isn't amazing enough, he goes back to where? He goes back to to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Why? Because he knows his stoning will do one of two things to the the disciples that he's made there. Either they're going to fear and they're going to fall away, or he's going to come as an encouragement and show them that this persecution that he constantly faces is worth dying for because of the message that he's proclaiming. He's building up the church. He's, he's being an example. He's being an example to them, but he's also being an example to us. If we face persecution, if we face hard trials in our life, hardships, whatever it may be, it's worth continuing to preach the gospel and to live it out in our lives. It's worth it. Paul ends up dying for it. So many people have ended up dying for this message that we sit here so freely on a Sunday morning. Recognize that. The amount of blood that was spilled to preserve the word of God so that we could have it today is truly amazing. Our next point is this. To be gospel-driven, you must declare the gospel with your mouth and demonstrate it with your life. You have to. You gotta open it. So one, one of the things that we can err to do in our, in our Christian walk, and maybe you've heard this, but you can say, well, I don't tell anybody about Jesus, but, but I, I, I try to live it out as best I can. And we can err on that side a little bit too much because the message needs to be proclaimed, not only through a demonstration of our life, but through our mouths as well. We have to. People are are saved by hearing the gospel message, not only just by seeing it. So let us not not err in in that context. Now, here's the reality, though. You cannot, cannot live the gospel. And let me, let me explain that a little bit. The gospel means good news. So the gospel's news, and you can't live the gospel any more than you can go and live last night's 11 o'clock news. You can't do it. You can't do it. That, that event is frozen in time. And it's already taken place. Now, what what do we do with the news? We live in light of the news because of what the news said. We live in light of it, but we can't live the news. Paul understood this. And this is where we'll go back. When, When he healed that man, he thought the people that were around him thought that Uh, Paul and Barnabas were these roaming gods that have come and indwelled in them too. And they they were hurrying to make sacrifices and offerings to these men. But Paul knew he wasn't the news. The sign that he just did, that was the power of God. The message that he had in his mouth, that was the power of God. Paul was just a vessel that brought it. 
He knew he was not the God. The news wasn't about Paul came into town. The news was what was coming out of his mouth. And the, the miraculous gave him the, the opportunity for many ears to listen to that news. Romans 10, 16, it's not on the screen, but it, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I mean, think about, that works for the gospel message for sure, but even think about like when somebody comes and brings you good news. It's like, yeah, your feet are beautiful because you're bringing me good news. I mean, it is true. We should all desire to have beautiful feet. Clean them up. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now listen, he demonstrated a changed life because of the gospel. Paul did. The gospel, the gospel that he, he knew was a real event in a, in a real time, in a real place for a real purpose and before real witnesses. I mean, this is, what, this is the testimony that we have in the Bible. And the event had, some, had a grave consequence because of the sinfulness of man. We can't live that news. We cannot heal our own sinfulness. You can't do it because you're a sinner. We think we can. We're tempted that we can, but you can't. That's why Jesus came. Creation in the fall happened, and Jesus came to take care of the fallen nature. That's redemption. Jesus loved sinners. He did. It's why he came. He wants them to be restored. So to be gospel-driven, which is our next point, we must care about those who are lost. Those who are apart from Christ. We have to have, we have to care. We have to have a heart for these people. So what is it costing you? What is it costing you to win the lost? Like if you just look at your life, answer that question. Is it costing you any time, any money, any inconvenience at all to win the lost? Is it costing you food on the table by inviting somebody into your house and sharing a meal with them, you know, demonstrating uh, a a changed life as, as a Christian, which opens up the door for you to open your mouth and proclaim it? Is it costing you any food or time? Is it costing you any sweat from your brow, any blood, any tears? Have you been stoned lately and dragged outside of Lower Burl? My guess is no, and praise God, and praise God. And we praise God because, man, we live in a pretty light atmosphere of persecution here, which should do what? Motivate us to even preach the gospel harder. We we preach a bloody gospel a horrific gospel, a gruesome gospel message. We preach bloody news. We live 
in light of a great sacrifice. And here's the reality. It cost Christ. Are we foolish enough to believe that it's not going to cost us anything? It cost Paul. Paul would travel from town to town expecting persecution because he knew he had power in its message. Yet every day, every day, I mean, we're all guilty of this. Every day we're prone to fear. We are prone to cower, to declare or demonstrate any type of Christianity in our lives. And when we get down to it, and we're honest with ourselves, we're having a fear of man more than a fear of God. We fear man. I mean, that's, that's, a rea- that's a struggle. That's a reality that we have. We fear what people think about us more than we fear God. And the Bible says, don't fear man. All, all that he can do is kill your body. That's it. Fear God who is in control of eternity. That's where our fear and our reverence, that's what the fear means, reverence. Our reverence is to God in light of that. And how do we, how do we demonstrate, how do we know that this is true in our own lives? We keep our mouth shut. We live according to the world. Now, maybe not on Sunday morning. We, we, put our, we put our best foot forward Sunday morning. But Monday morning when we walk into work, back into the world we go and, you know, Christianity already happened. We put a check mark in that box and we think we're all fine and dandy. But that's not what we should do. How else do we know? Men, we refuse to lead our families well. We refuse to lead our families well. We'd rather sit down, watch TV, than to open up the word of God and and share and disciple our wives and our our children. We can't, we have to fight those temptations. We have to. We, We even refuse to pray. We refuse to pray. And I know there's a ton of anxieties that come with public speaking and and praying in public. But in your time, alone time, pray that God would deliver you you from that. Like he's, he's more powerful than that anxiety that you have about praying at dinner, praying out in public. Why? We won't pray because that looks a little bit weird. I mean, nobody else is doing it. You're right. Nobody else is doing it because as a Christian, you have been set apart from the world and you're not supposed to look like the world anymore. You are a follower of Christ. Look like it. That's what we have to do with our lives. We can't refuse to spend time and energy for who Jesus came to save, sinners like you and me. He came for sinners. And we even fear our own family and friends. 
right? I mean, oftentimes they are the hardest ones to witness to. Can I get an amen? That's true. Why is it easier sometimes to witness to a complete stranger and tell them about Jesus, but you can't go to your parents or your aunt and uncle or your cousins and tell them about the, the, the experience that you had with Jesus and how you had a changed life and, man, I got this message of reconciliation and I want you to know about it. We don't do it. We don't do it and we are withholding the power of salvation to those who we say we love the most. Don't do that. Who cares if they think you're weird? You're weird. I'm so weird. Ask Marty. (laughs) Happy birthday, Marty. (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. Have a boldness. Have this boldness that Paul has. And instead of cowering in fear, let us, let us have this mindset that Paul had in, in Romans 9.1. And, and look how he puts this. So Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, right? But he also cared for his own people, which were the Jewish people. And, and listen to the, to the agony that he says here. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Un ceasing anguish for his people, great sorrow. And in this metaphor, he wishes he could be cut off, but unfortunately, that's not how this works. But that's the unceasing anguish. That's the the poetry that's in this. Like he is so burdened that his own people, the chosen people of God, are not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, that he wishes that he could do that. It's not how it works. Not how it works. He had a burden for the lost. He had unceasing anguish in his heart for everyone. And it's demonstrated by his life. Now, what do we do? What do we do with this? When, when a sinner comes into our presence, which we all are, but when their sinfulness is just like blatant, what do we do? That's not my problem. That's a lost cause. I'm good with Christ, like, but I'm out of here. Or, you know, I'm saved. They're a mess. I'm not touching this with a 30-foot pole. Let, let the pastors deal with this one. But how, how quickly do we forget Romans 5.8, as the redeemed body of believers. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God had compassion on the lost. Paul had compassion on the lost. Do you? Do you? I mean, when, when you see somebody just knee-deep in sin, making all the wrong choices apart from Christ, your mentality should be, I don't expect anything else. They're apart from Christ. We have a sinful nature. I don't expect them to act any different than as a sinner. But the power of the gospel can change that life, can restore them and redeem them. And if they feel the power of the salvation in their lives, that life will change. That life will not change by you calling it out and harassing them and telling them they're stupid and dumb. Why are you doing this? They're doing it because their nature says they're going to do it. And they love the darkness. But Jesus Christ is the light. And it only takes a little light. Light a match in a closet in a dark room. Like it, it lightens up everything. A little bit of light by you opening your mouth can just totally eradicate darkness. That's the power of the gospel message. We, as the redeemed body of Christ, we were never meant to be the judge of sinners. Mm -mm. Rather, you should identify with them as your old self. That thing that Christ died for, your old self, you're a new creation now. But we still remember, I know I do, of what I was. And we should identify with, with other people and help them come along and, and not withhold this precious message of reconciliation that we've been entrusted with. When in the world was the church ever meant to be a bunch of religious, pious, a whole bunch of other words, people, but rather a bunch of sinners who are new creations, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and now living for him in unity, building up one another, encouraging one another. That's what we want to be as Redemption Church. We want to be gospel-driven. Our last point today, our last point is this, and it comes from our core value. It says, we declare the plan of redemption by clearly articulating the gospel. And the point is this, to be gospel-driven, you must have responded to the gospel and be able to communicate it clearly. Listen, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to tease this out a little bit. It says, they came to Thessalonica, Paul, he's going around the towns again, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, 
including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So Paul, here we are again. Paul's continuing to go around to different towns and preach this message. But I can't help but read verse 2 with a little bit of uh, sass. Like, I can, I can just imagine these men, like, recounting their day around the campfire and be like, Silas is like, well, so we, we entered Thessalonica, and as usual, Paul makes a beeline to the synagogue again to preach this message. I mean, that's, that's, Paul, that's Paul's motivation. Like, that's what he did. This is the consistency of Paul that we see here. As usual, it's like when I take my wife out for a date day after being at home with seven kids for like three weeks straight and she hasn't had any adult interaction. Like I know if we go to Walmart, as usual, Jocelyn's gonna talk to the checkout lady and we're gonna get into a conversation (laughs) <laughs> or if we go out to eat, as usual, Jocelyn's going to talk to the waitress. <laughs> I just know it's going to happen. But that's what we want, right? I, I poke fun at her because it's hilarious. But that's what we all want. We want people to say, as usual, Dylan opened his mouth and talked about the gospel. As usual, Marty did this. As usual, Garrett's... Worshiping Jesus up here. That's right. That's what we want. Our as usual. Our lives got to proclaim Jesus as usual. But here's the reality. Paul understood it, right? He's responded to Jesus. So he's responded to the gospel message. But he also communicates it. He articulates it clearly. What does it say in that scripture? I had some of those words bolded, I think. He reasoned with them. He explained it to them. He proved it to him, to them. And some of them were persuaded. This is what we want. This is what we want to do with our lives. We want to to have responded to the gospel, but we also need to, to understand and have the knowledge of what the gospel is. We have to be able to articulate it to be able to share it. And you can only articulate it and share it if you've, been, if you've responded to it initially. So with that, as if, if, you've, if you've been here when I've preached before, I'm always trying to do something different, whether I'm drawing up here on the screen or whatever. But today, boy, do I have a treat for you. I have created a five-minute gospel presentation, a video, like an illustrated video that walks through the gospel with two verses, uh, John 3.16 and Romans 6.23. Now, I've done this for two reasons. One, some of you have checked out to listening to my voice. So if I pivot and change it up, it'll re-grab your attention on the, the most important part of this sermon. Now, unfortunately, I narrate it, so you're not getting away from my voice at all. So uh, if you're a believer here today, this is, a, this is a way that you can learn 
Um, this, this video runs through my mind. Anytime I'm talking about the, the gospel, this is, what, this is how I was trained. This is how I, was, I learned a method to always just remember it. And it, it makes it a little bit easier if you have visual. I'm a visual learner. Like if I'm listening to the audio Bible, I'm tracking along with my eyes at the same time. It's just how I, it's how I gain information. So it's for you, the believer, to, to learn and equip you for that. And I'm gonna share it to the group after, after church. But also... It's for those of you who have never truly heard an uninterrupted five minutes of dedicated gospel presentation. If you you have not heard the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, you will hear it today. And there will be a chance to respond to it. So with that, Let's uh, roll this beautiful bean footage, huh? (laughs) All right. John 3.16 is the most recognized verse in the Bible. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have a big problem. We perish. We die. But God desires that we would have eternal life. And through his love, he's provided a solution. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And if we would believe in him, we could have eternal life. But to understand the solution, you must first understand the problem that we each have. The book of Genesis tells us that God created the world, which includes the first humans, Adam and Eve. His creation was good. He gave Adam and Eve one role, to not eat the fruit from one specific tree. And if they did, they would surely die. But Satan came into the scene, disguised as a serpent, and tempted Eve to eat that fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to Adam. They disobeyed God's one command, and as a result, they were sent out of God's presence and now would die. This act of disobedience is called sin, and since they chose to sin, and since we are their children and part of their heritage, we also inherit the problem of sin. We know this to be true because we all still die. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. A wage is something that you earn. And what you earn as a sinner, someone who disobeys God's command in your own life, is death. Not just a mortal death, but an eternal death. In our current state, we are separated from God eternally. Now we fool ourselves into thinking that we can bridge the gap by being a good moral person. We think if we just do enough good works show enough charity that the chasm that separates us from God will be filled and God will accept us but the Bible tells us we cannot be saved in this way this is because God is just and requires an appropriate sacrifice to atone and pay for our sin but God gave us a solution that comes as a free gift unlike a wage a free gift is not something that you can earn it's completely free And God's free gift is that he gave his one and only son to pay for your sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. God sent his son to earth to live a perfect life in full obedience to the will of the Father and was crucified and died and was resurrected as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, satisfying the wrath of God that stands between us because of sin. When we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus is the answer to our sin and death problem, we will no longer perish. But what does it mean to believe? We must understand the last part of Romans 6.23. Christ Jesus our Lord. 
It may surprise you, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that means Messiah, the one who could save humanity from their sins. You must first believe that he came to save you. Second, Jesus is our Lord. To have a Lord means you are in submission and obedient to that person. That means you're no longer in control of your own life. Rather, Jesus is in control of your life. He is king. If you believe Jesus saved you from eternal damnation, your life will demonstrate obedience to the one who saved you. When we repent of the way we've been living, recognize Jesus as the Christ, submit to his lordship, and live in obedience to him, although our mortal bodies will die, we will yet have eternal life because we are declared righteous by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's only when you've been reconciled back to God that you can live for Him and be gospel-driven in your life to be able to look back and proclaim the good news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to your friends, family, and others. This is your joy to do because of the salvation that you've received. This fulfills the Great Commission, the last command Jesus gave His disciples. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The question is this. When you die, will you remain separated from God and have a one-way ticket to hell? Or have you repented, believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and been reconciled back to God? If you've been saved then it's time to get to work and be gospel-driven in your life. If you've not believed, then you will die in your sin and remain separated. But the good news is, is you can change that. This is what you must do in prayer to God. You must recognize that you are a sinner, living apart from God. Repent of the sin in your life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ who paid for those sins who is resurrected, and you must live in obedience to him forevermore, making him Lord of your life. The choice is yours. Press that next slide. Steven Spielberg, you better watch out. I tell you what, I got a new calling on my life. Hope that's helpful. An easy way, like literally the idea behind that. Now, I know there's a lot of animation with that, but the idea behind that is you can open up your Bible, show somebody two verses, draw that separation, and walk them through the gospel message in Romans 6.23. Like, it, it's that simple. And that's what we need to do. We need to have responded to that message, and we need to be able to clearly communicate the thing that saved us, the thing that saved us. That's what we want. That's what we want to do. Now, the reality is, is there may be some of us here today that have never heard that message or have heard it. Like, I heard that message a lot in my life before coming to Christ. Like, I... I grew up in church, like, but it ne I never heard the message. Like, it never sank in. If today is that day for you, if you're sitting there and saying, uh, 
I think I'm separated from God. Then you need to respond to that message. You have to respond to that message. You know, I think of Paul in, 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 in Acts. He speaks of preaching the gospel and like since he preached it, he's like, your blood's not on my hands anymore because as a Christian, Paul did what he needed to do. You heard the message. It's not my fault if you don't respond to it. You must make a choice. You must be willing to submit yourself to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You're in control of that. Like the Holy Spirit's gonna do a great work and, it, and, and he's convicting you right now, changing your heart, maybe making you feel the weight of your sin right now, priming your heart to accept that message. Will you do it? Will you be bold enough to say, I believe in Jesus and I need him as my savior because I have sin in my life and I recognize that I am apart from him and I am not heading to a good place if I die when I leave this place. I pray that you'll make a decision. And how I do it is I will be right here in the front row. If you want to, to come up front and, and want me to help you walk through that prayer, I, I'd be, man, I'd be thrilled to do that with you. And if there's 20 people that come up, there, I've already told some other, the elders here, like people are gonna come up and they're gonna pray with you and celebrate with you. So what I wanna do, and, and the worship team, you can, you can come on up here. What I wanna do is I wanna pray as the body of believers for those who are here today that you would give them boldness and encouragement to, I mean, it's a scary thing to get out of your chair after a sermon. But that's what we're calling you to do. So let's pray together as, as a body of believers here. Father, first and foremost, we, we thank you for this gospel message that has affected our lives, that has given us salvation, that has changed us within, that we are a new creation because of the work of Jesus Christ. We, we praise you for that. We worship you for that. But Lord, today, there's no doubt that there are those among us that today is the first day that they feel the weight of their sin. Today is the first day that they feel the separation and the, the destination that they're heading to because of that separation. And Lord, we pray that you would move in this place. We pray that your spirit would give them so much power that they would overcome their pride, that you would give them boldness to approach 
this stage to accept your son as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice so that they could have eternal life. And as a result, their lives would glorify you forever. Father, we pray that you answer our prayer this morning. Let souls be saved. Let lives be changed for your glory and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, I pray that you are empowered. And for those of you who don't know Christ, I pray that you have power to walk 